Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Voices. This podcast series addresses the opportunities and challenges within ESG through interviews with ESG specialists from KPMG and beyond. Throughout this series, we will discuss a broad range of environmental, social and governance issues, aiming to support governments, businesses and communities in creating an equitable and prosperous future. Despite ongoing efforts, biodiversity and nature is deteriorating worldwide, and this decline is projected to worsen with current business-as-usual scenarios. According to KPMG's 2022 Survey of Sustainability, less than half of companies currently recognise biodiversity loss as a risk to their business. The UN Biodiversity Conference, also known as COP15, will convene governments from around the world to agree to a new set of goals for biodiversity and nature. COP15 will look to establish a framework aiming to set out an ambitious plan to implement broad-based action to bring about a transformation in society's relationship with biodiversity and nature and to ensure that by 2050 the shared vision of living in harmony with nature is fulfilled. To dig into all this on the sidelines of COP15 in Montreal, Canada, I'm delighted to be joined by David Greenall, Global Managing Director, Climate Risk, Decarbonisation and Resilience, KPMG International. Karen and Leisha, Natural Capital and Biodiversity Global Lead, KPMG International. And Orla Delaghi, Biodiversity Lead, EMA, KPMG in Ireland. Carolyn, could you start today's podcast off by explaining what COP15 is, how it is different from COP27 and what the Paris Moment for Nature means? Well, to understand the genesis of the Conference of the Parties, which are commonly referred to as the COPs, we need to rewind the clock 30 years to the Rio Earth Summit, which took place in 1992, which agreed to the establishment of three conventions – the so-called Rio Conventions. And these were firstly the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, to tackle climate change. Secondly, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD, which is focused on actions for tackling biodiversity loss. And lastly, the Convention to Combat Desertification, which is focused on tackling issues related to combating land degradation and desertification. And these three conventions were set up to tackle the three different yet interrelated issues. And whilst there is a significant overlap between the three, all have their own separate agendas, which are wider than the overlaps the three share. For example, climate change is just one of the five drivers of biodiversity loss, and nature is just one of the solutions for tackling climate change. And the upcoming COP15, which will take place in Montreal, will be focused on actions to tackle biodiversity loss, with climate change being one of the important drivers in biodiversity loss. But there are other key drivers too, like land and sea use change. This COP15 is an important one. Many people are referring to it as the Paris moment because COP15 will aim to agree on a new global biodiversity framework with global goals for nature for the next decade and beyond. So it is 
a pivotal moment and the role of businesses and finance will be key to the success of it. Thanks, Carolyn. So, David, COP27, an annual meeting to discuss climate, had a full thematic day focused on biodiversity and COP15 this week is bringing together world leaders to agree on a set of goals specifically for nature and biodiversity. Could you explain how climate and nature are connected and perhaps highlight any key takeaways from Biodiversity Day at COP27? Sure. I'll start by saying that climate, heating, and nature loss are very clearly related and mutually reinforcing crises. The rise in global temperature over the last century has significantly altered both the composition, the functioning, and as well as the structure of natural ecosystems, often um, and in many ways irreversibly. These impacts are critically important as natural ecosystems provide services that also either directly or indirectly benefit humanity and our collective social welfare. Things that you can think of such as clean air, clean water, nutritious food, disease regulation, crop pollination and soil formation, reduced erosion, and and of course, habitat and biodiversity conservation. In essence, when you think about nature, it really does provide the basis for life and our economies, our livelihoods and prosperity all, all depend upon it. The link to climate change lies in the recognition that achieving net zero by 2050 won't, won't be possible without nature. While investments in nature won't solve climate change on their own, nature is arguably, uh, I would argue, one of the best climate solutions for remaining within the the one and a half degree heating limits or or at least getting as close to that limit as possible. And by this, I mean that protecting, restoring and, and better managing nature's ecosystems can help to prevent greenhouse gas emissions and also to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In my view, there's a pretty strong argument that all net zero pathways at this point, rely on the continuing capacity of nature to operate as a carbon sink, meaning essentially that they absorb and sequester man-made greenhouse gases. We already know that ecosystems such as forests, oceans and lakes, grasslands, wetlands, currently absorb about 20% of global GHG emissions. But these benefits are, unfortunately, being damaged by continued deforestation, agriculture and other land use practices. In addition to the critical role that nature plays in addressing and hopefully mitigating contributions to climate heating, natural climate solutions and green infrastructure also help to buffer against the physical impacts of climate change and and reducing disaster risk and vulnerability. To turn to your second question about COP27, I would say a clear bridge was established between nature and climate. Calls were made for leaders to better integrate nature into the global response to the climate crisis. These calls included a step up in action to address the accelerating loss of nature by delivering an ambitious and transformative global biodiversity agreement at COP15, effectively a nature agenda that focuses on reversing nature loss and achieving a nature positive world by 2030. Some of the key nature related developments at COP centered on the topics of nature based solutions, public private collaborations and unlocking and scaling of the trillions in nature and climate finance that we all know is required. Some of the notable developments that were announced were the COP27 presidency. It launched ENACT, which stands for the Enhancing Nature-Based Solutions for Climate Transformation Initiative, focusing on driving collective action across climate, biodiversity, and desertification. The launch of the high-quality blue carbon principles to provide guidance on coastal blue carbon projects and credits. Pilot projects and pilot applications of digital measurement reporting and verification technologies such as satellite-based remote sensing to measure forest carbon in Africa, 
And finally, the launch of the Big Impact Nature Fund, a new public-private fund for nature in the UK that's meant to unlock climate and spatial finance. And David, what are some of the biggest challenges businesses face when it comes to addressing the climate and nature biodiversity crises? I think at this point in the climate and nature crises, we really need all the innovation, speed and scaling of solutions that we can throw at, at all of these challenges. So I'd like to drill down on two of them, on two of those challenges, one being finance and accounting, and the second being siloed thinking on, on climate and nature. With respect to the first, finance and accounting, I think it's really essential that we quickly figure out ways to drive and catalyze financial flows to activate proven climate and nature solutions and also to mobilize action on the ground. To do so, we need to get much better at what I call valuing nature's value. By this, I mean that many of the benefits provided by nature and ecosystem services are not currently reflected in the market prices of goods and services, and therefore are often neglected or undervalued when it comes to making the business case for investing in nature. In addition, another key challenge is that the costs of environmental damage due to business activity are largely externalized and are not reflected in corporate balance sheets and P&L, so they get ignored or, or not fully integrated in, in decision-making. Conversely, if we can start to accurately value nature and integrate environmental costs and benefits into accounting frameworks, the economic incentive to invest in natural capital can be made. This accounting issue is now coming to the forefront via initiatives such as the TNFD and Finance for Nature, which are following on the heels of the TCFD on climate to promote integration of financially material nature accounting and disclosure requirements within national securities and disclosure regimes. With the second, by siloed thinking, I'm referring to thinking about climate and nature as separate or distinct challenges. Whereas the reality, as I spoke about earlier, is that coordinated interventions are needed to tackle both challenges. The challenge here is that we don't, if we don't properly think through things via an integrated lens, some solutions to climate might actually have a negative impact on biodiversity. And a good example that I often cite is the establishment of afforestation in grassy biomes, which could devastate local biodiversity and destroy ecosystem services. Conversely, not addressing deforestation could make it impossible to reach net zero by 2050. In effect, solutions to the climate-related challenge we face must also benefit nature. And Orla, further to David's comments, do you have any thoughts? So one of the biggest challenges that I see is the level of understanding and awareness about nature and biodiversity in the private sector. I think that most CEOs and nowadays kind of most people on the street could explain the climate crisis in a few sentences. So, you know, we're emitting too too many greenhouse gases. Those are heating the planet and causing serious damage. But for nature and uh, and biodiversity loss, we're just not there yet. I think a lot of people would struggle to define biodiversity, why it matters and how it links to our prosperity and well-being. Now, thankfully, there is a lot of research out there and this explains the whole issue very well for different audiences. And, you know, for a business and finance audience, I would point to reports from the Dutch and French central banks and a really interesting recent report for um, ministries of finance. It's called Bending the Curve on Nature Loss. And all of those reports really talk about systemic risks to the financial system and kind of explain how nature loss and biodiversity loss really relates to the financial system. I suppose another challenge that I see and a question that I have is, you know, we live in a world of limited resources and definitely increased demands on businesses, you know, for example, lots of new reporting requirements. And so my question is, 
will businesses need to hire in ecological expertise or biodiversity or will they themselves be able to achieve a sufficient level of understanding to take these reporting requirements forward themselves and, and do the, all of these assessments and the accounting that David talked about? Nature is really hugely complex. But if we want thousands of businesses and financial institutions to take action, then I think the methods and the guidance that we give them is going to have to be simple. And Carolyn, would you add anything? Whilst both climate change and biodiversity loss are key material risks for businesses, biodiversity could be viewed as a bigger financial risk to businesses at the moment, simply due to the fact that assessing climate change risks are more mature and advanced. Some of the biggest challenges we are seeing from businesses is how to build the internal capacity and competence of boards, risk management and investment committees and executives to accurately assess what the material impact and dependencies are to their businesses or financial portfolios from both climate change and biodiversity. Now, the task force on climate-related financial disclosures on the TCFD and now TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, are starting to help with that by providing frameworks for assessing these risks, but also opportunities. And biodiversity in many ways is more complex than climate change, simply due to the fact that there is not one single metric by which to measure it and compounded by the fact that nature is very location-specific and also the lack of standardised metrics and, and targets at a, at a global level, national level and, and an organisational level across various industry sectors. Now, the TNFD will hopefully help with this by providing this global framework to assist organisations to assess, manage and act on their involving nature risks and opportunities. And the latest beta version 0.3 was released just a couple of weeks ago for market consultation. And that market consultation and feedback from the market will be critical in terms of honing and refining the framework over the next year to ensure that it is an effective tool and can be widely adopted by market participants. And if we look at the recent crises, such as the ongoing global economic turmoil, supply chain issues, natural disasters and the pandemic, they all have further highlighted the dependencies on nature and the fact that we cannot live without nature, but it can certainly live without us. And Carolyn, what are some of the biggest opportunities? So what the science is telling us is that nature is now a central lever and our biggest ally to achieve net zero targets. A fifth of the world's 2,000 largest companies have already committed to net zero targets. But at present, nature risk disclosures receive much less regulatory scrutiny compared to climate risk. But regulatory and investor expectations are also evolving very quickly, though. So there is no pathway to 1.5 degrees without addressing nature loss and land, water and sea degradation. And if done well, an integrated approach to addressing climate change and nature will really be a win-win for companies to reach their net zero targets faster. The second big opportunity I see by 
driving strategies that protect and enhance nature and by integrating it into governance, strategy and enterprise risk management is that it builds resilience of a business and it mitigates risks across operations or financial portfolios and thereby it drives better investment, underwriting and capital allocation decisions. And this in turn allows organisations to influence enterprise value creation, be this through applying more resource efficient circular production methodologies, better engagement with clients, investees or supply chain partners, or by linking these nature smart business practices into environmental markets through high quality carbon projects with biodiversity co-benefits or accessing sustainable funding solutions to finance these strategies. So investing in climate change and biodiversity is becoming not just something that stakeholders are asking for, but that they are demanding. And the regulatory landscape on these issues is changing very fast. Businesses who engage now on the issue of biodiversity will be well equipped to deal with these evolving stakeholder expectations. And Ola, would you add anything? So for me, one of the biggest opportunities that I see and on something that's definitely being discussed at COP15 is halting financial subsidies that harm nature. So we actually still spend $1.8 trillion per year on subsidies that enable nature loss. And these are making the situation worse, that they're causing risks for businesses and financial institutions because they distort prices and, and, you know, they just enable this nature loss. We're actually financing our own extinction in this way, or that's the kind of the tagline that's been put against this strange situation where we have spending on, on financial subsidies that harm nature. So, you know, on the, on the negotiations in COP15, those negotiators are deciding how to reduce, redirect or eliminate those harmful subsidies. Progress there has been quite slow. But, you know, for the private sector outside of the negotiations, I think there's a huge opportunity for them to consider how and where their own activities up and down the value chain are maybe directly or indirectly enabling that nature loss. And then they can take rapid action to reduce those pressures on nature. Because I think this, all of this fits into the mitigation hierarchy. Under the mitigation hierarchy, we talk first and foremost about avoidance. So avoiding creating any negative impacts in the first place. And really, you know, the good news is that avoidance is often the easiest, the cheapest, the most effective way to reduce potential negative impacts. It's easier to, to not have the negative impact in the first place than kind of remedy it after the fact. But that does require a transformation away from business as usual. And the private sector, you know, one of the things that's linked to this, I guess, is its lobbying activities. So those may be enabling negative impacts on nature and and they may be intentional lobbying activities or kind of having unintended consequences. David, in your work today, are you starting to see organisations invest in nature or biodiversity impact strategies? If so, what are those companies doing? I think we're definitely starting to see business leaders becoming more aware of the risks of nature and biodiversity impairment and loss and and really the need to respect ecological limits. I think three kind of coalescing trends, if you will, have really come together to force this awareness. One, or clearly civil society calls for action. I think we've seen a lot over the last number of years in terms of 
institutional investor coalitions that have been advocating for the mainstreaming of climate and nature into investment decision making, and also for enhanced transparency and disclosure of nature-related risks and, and opportunities. And I, I think the third major trend is, is that we're starting to see more and more developments on the part of policymakers and regulators in various jurisdictions around the world starting to establish requirements for the protection and, and management of nature. So I think awareness, clearly, it's a good start. And we are seeing more and more leadership examples of companies that are doing things like developing biodiversity and climate adaptation plans, committing to adopt science-based targets for nature, using pretty neat and innovative nature tech solutions, and working together with other companies and, and across sectors to achieve common biodiversity goals and outcomes. That being said, on balance, the vast majority of organizations are, are still a pretty far long way off from systematically and proactively understanding how their business intersects with nature. And I think they're even further off when it comes to mainstreaming nature into, into their organizational fabric and the decision-making apparatus in a way that makes consideration of impacts on climate, nature, and vital ecosystem services really central to the way that they plan, invest, and, and operate their business. Where there is action, I think most companies have focused on identifying what to avoid. So activities, types of technologies, or, or locations versus defining positive ambitions or, or aspirations in terms of, of a net positive nature impact. I think over the next little while, we talked about those trends and I think they'll definitely continue. My view is that we'll, we'll undoubtedly see more attention being paid to and an effort being invested by companies in, in things like understanding the impacts and dependencies of their business models on nature and, and ecosystem services, developing climate transition plans that link climate and biodiversity outcomes. Third, tracking nature and climate KPIs, key performance indicators that relate to strategic business goals and, and that enable effective risk and, and opportunity management. And I think lastly, communicating and disclosing on nature-related performance and challenges to, to both internal and external stakeholders for, for both voluntary and, and compliance reasons. And Carolyn, would you add anything to what David just said? So yes, we are increasingly starting to see corporates and financial services clients who are wanting to understand how they can assess their biodiversity risks across their value chain or their investment portfolio and how they can incorporate these with their related climate risks assessment and where the opportunities are. We're also seeing businesses that are realizing the opportunities associated with nature and biodiversity. Some businesses are looking at natural assets more seriously. Examples of natural assets that could benefit from next type structures include natural landscapes such as forests, wetlands and coral reefs, as well as working lands such as farms. Thanks, Carolyn. Orla, what should companies think about when they consider investment in nature and biodiversity impact strategies? I think measurability and baselining is critical in this area. You know, when a company is considering an investment in nature or trying to achieve any sort of positive impact for biodiversity, I think 
we'll probably see a lot of nature positive targets and funding commitments coming out of this COP, which is really welcome. It's what needs to happen. But to achieve positive impacts for nature, then you need to be very clear on the scope of the assessment or the targets. You need to know kind of what you have to begin with in order to say that there's a nature positive or, you know, positive impact. Ultimately, the positive impacts need to outweigh the negative impacts. That's what nature positive is all about. And that means defining kind of what's in and out of the calculation. So are you including your value chains? Are you including your full financial portfolio or focusing on kind of one region or one area, one site even? And I think we we need to understand the state of nature at that starting point of whether it be a target or a project or a product. What was the state of nature? So the common baseline year that's being discussed at COP is 2020. So we're talking about halting and reversing nature loss measured from a baseline of 2020. And so that by 2030, nature is visibly and measurably on that path towards recovery. But I guess the further away we get from 2020, the harder it's going to be to baseline against that year. So there's some talk about using baselines that are maybe a bit more recent because that's what we'll have the the latest data for. But I think I just want to make that point that, you know, nature positive is is not just an, a nice phrase. It, it's, it should be backed by data, by baselines, by uh, measurable information. Thanks, Ola. And Carolyn, can I come to you? Much like climate, once organisations have set their net zero ambitions, Companies need to back up their commitments by having a clear science-based understanding of their organization's impact and dependencies, their material exposures, and clear, transparent actions, metrics, and targets on how to get there. And I might add, companies need to consider the type of data they would need to collect and the type of technologies and analytical tools they would deploy to measure, assess and report against their progress of their nature and biodiversity impact strategies in a reliable and cost-effective and credible manner. Arguably, nature is more complex, but this should not defeat us. Whilst there likely never will be one universal metric for biodiversity, the TNFD just released its approach to metrics and targets development, which was co-developed in conjunction with the science-based targets network. And finally, what are you hoping to hear from COP15 on how companies are realigning or planning to realign their business strategies to better support climate, nature and biodiversity needs? Ola, can I come to you first? So we know that more businesses and financial institutions than ever, than ever before are attending this COP. And I think that's really positive because it shows that private sector support for a strong and ambitious agreement uh, for the next global biodiversity framework. At the COP, I suppose I'm hoping to hear a sense of the urgency required. You know, this COP has been two years delayed. And so we acknowledge that we have a lot of work to do on data, on definitions, on the science. But we can still start on that pathway to, you know, the global vision of living in harmony with nature. We We can start on that today with the information that we have. Thanks, Ola. And Carolyn, would you add anything? So I think COP15 will be the start of this conversation and action agenda on biodiversity. So what I'm hoping to see is not only an ambitious global goal for nature, but also strong engagement right across the business and finance sector at the conference itself. 
So businesses asking questions about what they can do to integrate biodiversity risks and opportunities into their enterprise risk management, as well as providing concrete examples of where they have done and implemented this, what their lessons learned are, and how we can scale this work up across all sectors to ensure the transformative change that is required to meet the new global goals that hopefully will be set at COP15 and, and meet those goals. That's great, Carolyn. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for speaking with me today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about building a shared future for life on Earth. Join us again next time for more insights from ESG leaders and innovators. You can also find our latest insights covering a range of ESG topics by visiting home.kpmg forward slash ESG. Thanks for listening.